really like doing playing with multiple characters and multiple viewpoints is that you can really play with the idea of the unreliable narrator and how people perceive things differently. We spin a web of gossip. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, 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 and who doesn't like gossip? It might not be very good for you, but it's, very, <laughs> but it's really tasty. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Hello friends, welcome to the Open Book Podcast series, where we bring you fascinating and important conversations between local and international authors. I'm Fasti Karlitz, and I'll be listening to these conversations with you. Today's episode features David Mitchell and Lauren Birkus in conversation with Jennifer Malik. You've probably heard of both of these authors. David Mitchell is a British author and screenwriter who has been shortlisted for the Booker twice, and whose most well-known book is Cloud Atlas. His most recent novel, Utopia Avenue, is the story of a rock band in the 1960s and their journey from the seedy clubs of Soho to the United States. Lauren Birkus is a best-selling South African author who has won the Arthur C. Clarke Award. Her most recent book is Afterland, which is a high-concept adventure novel about a global pandemic that wipes out almost all men. They are in conversation with Jen Malik, who is the editor of the Johannesburg Review of Books. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this Open Book Podcast. Um, I'm here with Lauren Bjorkis, and we're going to be talking about her latest novel, Afterland, and David Mitchell, and we'll be talking about his latest novel, Utopia Avenue. Thanks so much, Jen. Uh, really nice meeting you, Lauren, and uh, you too, Jennifer. When I was asked to chair this panel with two of my favorite ever authors, I sort of felt like the karmically endowed protagonist in one of your novels, somehow special and touched by fortune. I just hope some kind of dark, tragic event doesn't derail my timeline by the end of this. <laughs> we'll do our best to make sure that doesn't happen in the next <laughs> half hour or so, Jennifer. Thanks very much. Just write, <laughs> write me a happy ending. Um, no, but I'd like to begin by outlining a literary quest that has occupied my adult life. Um, as much as I take pleasure in being challenged by difficult books, and as much as I appreciate literary experimentation, what I've realized I'm constantly searching for in my adult reading is um, a sort of a sense of ex intense excitement, that completely consuming, addictive feeling that I got from, you're going to laugh, but Enid Blyton when I was a child, or um, I, I suppose everyone goes through an Enid Blyton phase, um, and Terry Pratchett when I was a teenager. And I read a lot, but I don't find this feeling very often. In fact, it's extremely rare, partly because I think of what happens to us hormonally and mentally when we reach the drudgery of adulthood. But I think both of you managed to recreate this feeling in your books. You stir that sort of almost forgotten sense of magic, wonder, um, sort of a tra the trance-like state that gets you into trouble for reading past your bedtime under the covers with a torch or reading double maths with the book tucked into your textbook. So thank you very much for writing those kinds of novels. Thank you. I think it's, um, it's definitely something I look for in my reading as well. I just want something that I can fall away into. Yes. And I think over the last few months, it's, it's been even more important than ever. So I'd like to start the conversation by thinking about Utopia Avenue and Afterland as adventure novels. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong, they're beautifully written, but there's danger, there's action, there's excitement. Um, but most importantly, they draw you in, they keep you reading. They have that addictive quality. Is that something you, you strive to strive for in your writing? Is it something that preoccupies you? Um, Lauren, perhaps you could go first. <laughs> Um, well, it's interesting because I actually have 50,000 words of afterland that are on the cutting room floor, which is not my usual process. I normally write very lean and then write up um, in the editing process. Um, but so much of that was backstory, and I realized that the backstory was getting in the way of the story, which is this kind of epic neo-noir chase across America in a world transformed by the absence of men. Um, and all the backstory about how the pandemic played out and the family being stuck in kind of first a military base and then this kind of luxury bunker. It was great and it was really interesting, but it was getting in the way of the actual story and like the heart and guts of it. Um, so I, I learned, I went through a very difficult process kind of having to scale all that back and cut away the chaff to really get to kind of the heart of it. So I'm glad it turned out that way because it was very difficult to get there. Well, I, I think, um, you know, what I noticed about that, about Afterland is 
I mean, it's, it's one of your most intensely researched books, I think, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But it's also, I think, that you're, one of your, it's your book with the, with the leanest plot. It's basically a chase narrative. Um, and you know, you're known as a sort of, um, I suppose it's still a high concept book and you're known as a high concept author. But um, if, you, if you look at the plot, it's a, it's a very simple plot. And some of the best sort of dystopian, post-apocalyptic novels and movies are, are, are like that. Definitely. I think I was writing in kind of conversation in the back of my head with novels like The Road and The Handmaid's Tale, um, which are, you know, also kind of very elegant in their simplicity. Mm. And so that's definitely something I had in mind. But yeah, it's one of my few books that I can actually explain. You know, it's this and the shiny girls that have like that, that log line, that's that elevator pitch of time traveling serial killer or world mm. without men. But the rest of my books are just, I'm like, okay, so there's this reimagined Johannesburg and it's magical and people who have committed terrible crimes have magical animals that manifest as kind of part of their sin, but also their conscious. And it's about, you know, it's just, these are, it is, it is definitely like a simpler, more elegant kind of high stakes um, chase narrative than anything mm -hmm. I've done before. And David, do you, is, is this sort of the magic of reading, is that something you, um, you strive towards as well in your, in your, in your books? Or do you just happen upon it happily? Um, I strive towards it. Uh, I should say thank you very much for the kind things you said about uh, my writing and your introduction, by the way. I need to cut in for a moment. That when Before you arrived, when Jen and I were talking, we go way back. She was like, oh, my God, I can't wait to speak to David. He is literally my favorite of favorites. And I was like, oh, great. Thanks Aww. a lot, Jen. <laughs> It's true. I can't believe. <laughs> well, um, I'm sure uh, if I'd arrived first, then Jennifer would um would 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 have equally and truthfully said that uh, Lauren is one of your is one of her all time <laughs> favourites as well. So thank you, thank you both. It's true. <laughs> exactly. True on um, both counts. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm sure. Well, I know because she just said so that uh, Lauren thinks the same. Uh, we are guided as writers by the readers who we also are and uh, in your eloquent introduction about that that thing that comes more easily when we're perhaps in a less jaded stage in our lives when we're children that sort of crack cocaine addiction to a narrative just how wonderful that is and unlike crack cocaine mm -hmm. of course it's side effects are entirely benign they're good for your emotional intelligence they're good for your ability to interact with the world i think they teach you about the world rather than numb you to it so now that i've made clear that the crack cocaine reference is entirely metaphorical and only up to a point uh <laughs> i can uh, affirm and agree that yeah for sure what you just said is exactly what i want to happen that um that sense that when you the first thing you think of when you wake up in the morning is oh great i've got that book to go at today uh that a tendency to put off less pleasant jobs just so you can sit down with a book for an hour that's exactly what i'm after however mm. also you don't know if you've written that you don't you, as the writer of that narrative and i'd be interested to see if lauren agrees you have no idea if you've achieved that or not it's like in the same way you can't actually scare yourself and you can't tickle yourself successfully either when the subjects and the object are the same you can't actually know if it's working or not and so you just write these narratives with um you know they're going well because you want to get back to writing them and you find yourself kind of a bit like how i just described as a reader you find yourself sort of putting off less pleasant jobs to get back to your writing room to get on with the narrative that's always a good indicator but they're only indications you can't actually know you've succeeded until people who are not your mum and people who uh, have no direct interest in making you feel good about your narrative then come to you and say oh that just ah oh, that was great that was great and when they say that ideally from a stranger and you can see they mean it that's just one of the best feelings in the world because until then you don't actually know if you've succeeded unlike a musician when you're on stage performing something and you just know if it's working or not as as a writer you're never in the room when your art is being consumed so you sort of have to rely on second-hand reports and i'm now aware i've been talking for the last five minutes and i should cede the floor to um lauren or to your good self jennifer <laughs> oh lauren if you have anything to add no i agree entirely it is and that's partly what makes writing so terrifying is you're kind of launching the ship out into the ocean and hoping it doesn't sink 
and that the timbers, you know, aren't covered in rot and mold and I'm belaboring this metaphor, but, <laughs> but yeah, you know, reading is essentially a conversation between the book and the reader and the author is not involved at all. So you do get these kind of weird secondhand reports. I guess it's also a bit like, I don't know, scribing and like, you know, pulling apart the entrails of the bird and, and you just have the entrails and you actually need someone to see it. That that metaphor is even worse. Forget that. I should not be a writer. Maybe I shouldn't be a speaker. Oh, I like your metaphors. They're great. <laughs> no, 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 no. I love your metaphors. Uh, they're both five-star Amazon review metaphors. <laughs> okay. More about the entrails, please. Go on about the entrails. I was enjoying that. <laughs> yeah, no, so it, it is, you, you know, like you actually, you've murdered this thing. You've murdered yourself to make this thing. And it's been this incredibly difficult process and you actually have no real sense of what it is. I'm going to add another metaphor. It's like this Frankenstein monster you've created and you're sending it off to live and, and to see if it works. Frankenstein! <laughs> Frankenstein! And to see if it actually like is able to stand for itself and like engage people. And, and it is that incredibly magical moment where you have strangers engage with you, where someone tweets at you and, or if you have someone come up to you at a reading, and I miss readings a lot, um, to have that kind of personal engagement where people are like, I love the story and it meant so much to me. And and when reviewers just get it and they and they talk about stuff that you hadn't actually even realized was in the book, um, where you're like, oh, oh, yes, yes, I totally meant to do that. That was completely intentional. I'm glad you picked up on that. As opposed to this kind of subconscious magic of the process of writing where it feels like you're channel channeling some kind of, you know, great miasma of story that like lives out there and you're just trying to catch onto it and hold onto it and like beat it into shape. I'm just going to keep stacking metaphors until you tell me to stop. Um, what, what, uh, well, uh, I'll meet your metaphors and raise <laughs> you. Um, <laughs> um, okay, good. I think Excellent. of a novel as a valid interpretability machine. You, ah. you can't possibly put everything in that thousands, tens of thousands, hopefully in time hundreds of thousands of readers will find in it because you are just the one mind, you're you and you're not them. However, you can construct an interpretation machine that people can engage with, get out of a thing, an interpretation, an impression, a thought, a kiss, shall we say, that you didn't put in, but it's still valid. It's still real. It isn't yeah. just their imagination. It, it, it's it's not only their work. As you said, it's a conversation. You're making the converser. And if we do our job well, then that conversation will take as many forms as there are readers who hopefully engage with the book. But um, we deserve a little bit of credit when we make a good interpretation machine, when we make a good converser. I think that's Definitely. that's our art. And I think that's why we don't need to sort of do the, oh, yes, I absolutely meant to put that in, or even let people down with a, no, that wasn't there at all. You're imagining things, mate. <laughs> it's yeah. something which is neither and both of those. We make a converser. And if we do it well, then those mm -hmm. conversations between the novel, between our novels uh, and the readers will be valid, enriching, beautiful, life-enhancing ones. Well, it's it's ephemeral, I suppose, and it's it's intangible, and it's just, um, I suppose you're lucky to have those kinds of minds. I mean, you're both known for your concepts and ideas, but you're also both known for your plots and characters, and I think those are the sort of tools of the, the machine that um, are more, uh, hopefully more manageable and more controllable. I'm not sure about that. But, um, I've got something to say if I may. Yes, of course. Uh, I think the things that Lauren and I make for a living are made of five things. Plot, character, you just mentioned. Style, that's the language itself. Themes or ideas. And finally, structure. And I think the plot and the character are propulsive. These are the things that pull you through, that, that make you not want mm. to do anything else about, but apart from find out what happens next to whom to this person then the style and the ideas they're the opposite of propulsive which is somehow retardative or i can't think of a good opposite for propulsive can you think of one Lauren? just on the spot no Ooh. pressure um entropic oh yeah i'll go with entropic <laughs> yeah entropic forces they make you stop and think, oh, look at you. What a beautiful sentence. <laughs> ooh, ooh, that's just amazing. <laughs> or what a great idea. I've thought of that, but never noticed myself thinking of that. Or even I've never met that idea in, in my life. And damn it, it's true. Yeah. At, those, at those points, you're kind of stopping. And 
somehow the structure is neither propulsive nor entropic. It's sort of there, it's the skeleton on which the other organs of the novel sort of hang and do their thing. But it can be quite uh, sinewy and interesting to explore as well. Uh, why did I interrupt you with that? I'm not sure. but uh, Because it was fantastic <laughs> is why. <laughs> Bless you. Um, all narratives are made of these things. They They have different priorities there can be some fantastic books in which next to nothing happens or some great narratives um the whole point of waiting for godot is that nothing's it's, it's plotless it's utterly plotless mm. that's the point yeah it's still a great narrative other mm. books of course can be nothing but plot one would name no names but um a typical airport thriller mm. or not a typical one a poorly written airport thriller the point that I'm rather ineptly trying to make is that you can have books made entirely of plot and they can be as dull as ditch water because the other elements yep. have been neglected. Uh, they're just not well mm-hmm. written. They're stuffed with cliche. You don't give a damn about the people, yet they're full of plot. So these are five dancers since it's official metaphor day and they need to work together and make something beautiful together. Some will take a greater part a greater role in the choreography than others but they all need to work together and do their thing and i keep interrupting with these big long rabbit holes back to you <laughs> well I'm, I'm very interested to hear you both thinking so logically about your magical books i wonder if you were both good at maths at school or if you have sort of a logical <laughs> brain underlying this, this creative side both of you are also very well known for your world building and i find an, i think there's a Quite a nice connection. Um, David, your world building has been going on since your first book, and you're creating this kind of multiverse with recurring characters that pop up between books and a fantastic Easter eggs for book nerds. Batsegundo, Marinus, Louisa Ray, the Dessert Family, Robert Frobisher all pop up in Utopia Avenue. We've met them all before, which is so much fun. There's a famous photograph of Lauren standing in front of a pinboard she used, big pinboard she used to plan out The Shining Girls which is her novel about a time-traveling serial killer. And it's got bits of text pinned up everywhere and then photographs pinned up everywhere. And then joining all of those are hundreds and hundreds of threads to show how things connect, keep it all mapped out in her head so she doesn't get confused, I suppose. And I was wondering if if you have a similar board, or at least if you did, it would probably take up half of your house. (laughs) So I was wondering how you keep track of, of of your multiverse. Uh, I don't really need to keep track. It's like when um, I, was, I heard an ornithologist speak the other day, and apparently birds' brains increase in size, literally, prior to migration, so that they can do the navigational calculations and remember what they're flying over from last year and access those memories during the migration. And then when they land and get back to the usual birdie business of worms and breathing and stuff the brains kind of shrink again uh, it's a little bit like that for my novels and this uber novel when i need to remember where everything is then i do uh, then i'll go back and reread earlier chapters to see if someone might fit in a new role or metaphor number 26 uh, i think of <laughs> advertising vacancies job vacancies for parts kind of in-house first and I'll do that, see if anyone replies. If they do, I'll kind of interview them, see what they'll bring to the role, see if their chronology fits, I'll see if their personality fits, or more interestingly, doesn't quite fit. See if there's some sort of progression that is necessary from who they were in an earlier book to who they need to be now, and see if I can work that progression into the character arc in the new book. I'll do all these things, then they get the job and or don't get the job but if they do then I write them and here they are and then when their role is over I'm allowed I can maybe I have to promptly forget all about them until next time there is an underlying narrative with with these quasi atemporal immortals who have a different relationship with death to that that bone clocks are kind of locked into as ordinary mortals but other than that i don't really have a board like the type that you described lauren has i can see why in a time traveling narrative without that you just get swamped absolute moment by moment clarity is necessary otherwise you kind of hear the hiss of escaping gas 
And the reader thinks, hang on, I don't think even she's sure where everything is here. Even Mm -hmm. if only 2% of that map gets into narrative, it'll be 2% that has that copper-bottomed, utterly authentic... It it, it sort of radiates with the other 98%. And and the reader, without even making this calculation, realises that the set isn't wobbling, that these aren't actors, these are real people. This This would absolutely hold up. So I think the reader needs to know that the other 90% that isn't getting into the book is there. And Mm. if the reader is convinced of that, then you can get away with anything you want with the 2% because it's consistent. It's not made up. You aren't winging it. So I I really understand the need for that. Finally, maps, just as you were saying, what I did do, and I'd like to see if Lauren did the same as a kid, um, my holiday activity, I, I was such a low maintenance kid looking back, give me a massive piece of paper and a set of pens and I would make my own Middle Earth, I would make my own Earth Sea, I would draw my own continents and islands and think about the relationships between them and where does the bad guy live, where are the orcs, where's my Sauron and then where are the goodies and what's the difference between them and and, and what are the distances and I'd be happy with that for a week for the whole of a half-term holiday. I think of those as embryonic novels, and I'm just curious to know if Lauren did the same kind of thing when when she was a kid. Definitely. Um, We also used to play war games, I guess like Warhammer 40k. But friends of mine started making them with just kind of like a little female clay characters. And and I actually wasn't that interested in the strategy, and I started making it into kind of a role-playing game and started like creating stories with these characters and getting away from like the boring strategy and war completely. And of course, I like play Dungeons and Dragons. Hey, and me just, too. Yeah. What's the character from your Dungeons and Dragons days who you remember the best? Um, I had a dryad called Stalia who had a very cute bat in a cage, but I can't tell you much more about her. Um, I DM'd a lot, actually, um, which was really fun. But we ran an evil campaign. It was very dark. <laughs> I had a, I just had a druid called Omadorn, which uh, was the title of a Mike Oldfield album that I liked. I'm showing my age, and uh, he, he was he was quite staid and uh, neutral. I wonder <laughs> if I wonder if we can see signs of our ideal adult vocation in the forms of childhood play that we gravitated to most naturally. You, I wonder if that's a consistent principle. What do you think? Yeah, um, I think it could definitely be. But I I also had a friend I've been kind of doing some work with where we've been working on a TV show together. Sorry, Jen, I'm just going to run. Go with this. go for it. I'm feeling very left out because I never played Dungeons and Dragons, but. It's never too late. It's never too late. <laughs> I was also going to say, I love the way you guys pretend you stopped playing. I mean, I know very well you've both been playing all lockdown. Oh, I on. wish. I wish I don't really have anyone to do it with at the moment. That's my problem. Well, David, email me afterwards. Let's sort something out. Um, okay, okay, great. <laughs> a friend of mine was talking about, you know, like this idea of writers being plotters or pantsers. So either you are a deep plotter and you have like your spreadsheets and you know exactly what's going to happen chapter by chapter and you've got every story beat or you're kind of flying by the seat of your pants. And a friend of mine recently, he got very frustrated with me because I'm definitely more on the pantser side. Like I, I know where I'm going and I know some of the major waypoints I've got to hit along the way, but along the way I'll take detours and something interesting will be excavated and I'll be like, oh, that's really interesting. I kind of want to follow that path. And he said, you know, when he thinks of that, there's another theory which comes out of Dungeons and Dragons, which is that you're either, what is it? You're either a barbarian who just goes charging into battle or you're, I guess, the assassin who's like very stealthy and like planning everything and like knows every move. And I'm like, well, I'm not really a barbarian. I'm more of a ranger. Like I can see the castle I'm heading to over there. And then I've got to figure my way out through this forest. And oh no, here's a dragon. I better like, you know, make friends with it and convince it to fly me to those mountains over there, which actually look more interesting. And that really describes how I work is that I'm kind of looking for more interesting ways through. I'm trying to find a way through this huge deep forest That'll get me to my end destination, but I'm very happy to like find interesting detours and adventures along the way. I've heard about plotters theoretically, uh, or, or, or the equivalents of the same in in in, in other people's terms, mm. where you write the book before you write it, where you sit down and 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 just work at everything. I've never actually met one. That's ah. the thing. Uh, <laughs> I met partial ones, and I'm a partial one. Um, Metaphor number 38. Uh, <laughs> I, I think of it as a road, a road trip. Or yeah. know you're going to go through, say, a road trip through the alphabet. You, you know you want to go through C. 
because it's this great mm. idea and you've been thinking about it for 10 years and you've got to get that book in a, you've got to get that into a book at some point and here's the book you know you're going to go through say h because if you go to c then that will naturally to that so of course you have to um you know you want to go to um m, m and o because that's uh, that's uh, a threefer you can't split them up it's a great idea that's from something that you abandoned six years ago but now it's our has come at last and you know you've got say something at the end something sort of not quite z but say a w around there because what a great way if, you, if you're doing m n and o then you've got to have then then that'll just point ineluctably towards w so i kind of know that much but until i get to c lord only knows yep. what D and E are going to be, and you might get to see and think actually there's nothing wrong with this idea. It just doesn't belong here. So let's change that C and sort of mutate it into something a little bit different. So you half make them and half grow mm. them. I feel. I think there was a. I think it was El Doctor. It was a beautiful quote about how writing is like taking a road trip at night. You know, you know where you're leaving from. You know where you're going to, but the rest of the way you can see twenty feet ahead of you in the headlights, and you just have to kind of stay <laughs> on the road. Yeah, great. This is <laughs> yeah. a sort of. Mutual metaphor improvement. <laughs> well, I mean, it's El Doctoro's. I wish, I wish I could just steal it and pretend it was mine. <laughs> I, I also like. Um, there's a writer. Uh, oh no, I'm going to forget his name. Oh no, I'm a terrible person. I think it's Jason Aaron. Um, Jason Arnop. Jason Arnop, who says, uh, "Being a writer isn't hard. Like being a firefighter is hard. Being a writer is hard. Like being on fire is hard." And I always love that because I find writing very, very difficult <laughs> and it does often feel like I'm on fire and I don't know how to get through it. And I'm running around <laughs> going, ah! Well, as a, as a reader, we see none of this. So we just no, see I know. These, uh, <laughs> it looks effortless. Polished. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, one of the things that seems effortless in your books um, and is clearly, I'm, I'm actually interested to find out how it happens now, is you flick between characters. Both of you use multiple characters in almost all of your books. Um, and I was going to ask, do you ever write a section in one character and then decide to go back and change it to the other character's point of view? But now I'm more interested to find out when that point of view happens, because if you're veering off in different directions, how do you make sure that you don't hit the same character two chapters in a row or something like that? I think it just kind of, you know, it ha kind of happens organically and you have an organic sense if, um, if you have the same character two chapters in a row, and sometimes you do, and sometimes that's okay. You know, there's no there's no rule book that if you have multiple points of view, you have to have ABC, ABC, ABC. But I, what I really like doing, playing with multiple characters and multiple viewpoints, is that you can really play with the idea of the unreliable narrator and how people perceive things differently. And that's always been like a really fun thing for me to, and then to also kind of, it becomes a puzzle box for the reader as well to be like, oh, you know, Cole said this, but now Billy's saying that. And what, where, where does the truth actually lie in between? Which I think comes back to what David was saying about, um, you know, kind of an interpretation machine. We spin a web of gossip. <laughs> yes. Uh, and 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 who doesn't like gossip? It might not be very good for you, but it's great. <laughs> but it's really tasty. You also get. The, uh, I, I agree with the thing Lauren said, of course. There and. You have the interior-exterior dichotomy, which is fun. You get to see someone from the outside yes. uh, behaving a certain way, maybe an unaccountable way. Maybe they look rude. Maybe they look difficult to understand. Uh, then you get inside their head, and then this illogic, this confusion becomes, ah, okay, now I understand. And that, ah, that's quite a nice thing to experience as a reader. Yes. And it's nice to do as a writer uh, as well. Um, your ABC, 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 that's a pretty perfect description of the structure of Utopia Avenue. There are three main narrators. It mm. is ABC, it is ABC, ABC. They've got to go around. Um, I agree about there not being an easily explicable how. There is a kind of a how, uh, mm. I, how we do this. Uh, but it's to do with an instinct or a sense. It's, all, it's not too complex to understand it's always too simple to explain it's just of if uh, no no no, <laughs> no. no. Uh, it, no it's, it's 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 i don't actually understand the mechanics it just happens i don't i don't know it's <laughs> it's more like the rudiments of a dress sense sort of if you've got two shades that are too close to each other nah that just doesn't go that doesn't go but 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 yeah if, if, if you've got orange and green now whoa Whoa, you don't normally see those next to each other, so let's all try with that one. Or 
to drop that metaphor, it's maybe like <laughs> the basic arithmetic. Two is too few. Four is too many. But A, B, C, A, B, yeah, one, two, three, one, two, three, that's good, that'll work. It, it, it's just, it's, yeah, that's good, that'll work. Uh, what are the conscious decisions that underpin that decision? I don't really know. But I do mm. know that the decision is, it, it makes itself, really. Five narrators that we don't visit very often, that's starting to feel more like a memory test than a structure for a novel. <laughs> but then there are some novels for whom three would be too few, and you do need five, and that's great. Um, mm. There's a TV show or something involved with once that has eight, eight of them. That's kind of the maximum. I've got eight main characters, and you have to keep those plates spinning and revisit and make sure the viewer isn't forgetting who this, that, or the other was. Mm. So. We've spoken a bit about, um, you sort of stayed in the realm of keyboards and computers so far, and I, but I'd like to ask, do you need to have adventures to write an adventure novel, do you think? It's a great excuse to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is a research expense. Um. <laughs> it depends on the tax regime in your country as well. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely, totally. And how good your accountant is. Mm. Um, no, I mean, I, I, I like to do deep dives. And because, you know, my last three novels have been set in America, um, initially by coincidence, because, you know, the, the, the Shiny Girls, which is about a time-traveling serial killer, and I wanted to look at the 20th century and how much things have changed and how much things have, have stayed the same. If I'd said that in South Africa, it would have been by necessity an apartheid novel. And I felt like I'd explored analogies of, like, apartheid in both Marxland and Sioux City. So I was like, I don't really want to do that again. And I want to be able to talk about the fight over women's rights to control their body and, uh, you know, the first uh, nuclear fission test and cinema and and you know just how many things have changed and mccarthyism and how that echoes apartheid which echoes the war on terror and the rise of fascism and you know all these interesting things and america made the most sense for that so but i also wanted to say it somewhere i'd lived that i had a sense of familiarity because place is really important to me it becomes you know a, a kind of character in the book so i had lived in chicago for a while and i went back to to go and do like a deep dive research and i, I did two different research trips and spoke to people and I did a lot of kind of historical stuff, but so that so that's how my first book ended up set in America, and then it was a two book deal. So this is all boring business stuff. No, 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 it's fascinating. But but I, you know, I think we've been talking a lot about kind of the art of writing, but we aren't. You know, there is a lot. There is a business side to this as well, yeah, and it would yeah. be wonderful if writers were just recognised for their art. But it is commerce at the end of the day too. Um, and my publisher asked if my next novel could be set in America as well. And I was like, cool, I've got this idea. I'm fascinated with Detroit and ruined porn. But again, how that echoes Hillbrow and Johannesburg and how we see Hillbrow as this kind of broken place, um, post white flights and, you know, just, just the ruin of Johannesburg and Detroit is seen as this kind of ruined side of America. So it, it became interesting ways of exploring kind of big themes that I was interested in. That's fascinating. And, um, and of course, if we, don't earn enough to feed ourselves. There are no books. There are no novels. We, we, exactly. we, and, 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 and if you've got a family, then the financial aspect becomes even more pressing. And if you live in a country rather without a functioning health service, then then yeah. there's an extra layer of complexity for American writers. And this is why so many of them have to teach you. Absolutely. You, you, you kind of need the medical insurance. So these yep. very non-writerly, these apparently non-writerly facets of our lives uh, are, are also angled at the writing. They they they, they interact mm. directly with the writing. I think. I heard I heard you speaking about David. I heard you speaking about um, mm. Chekhov in another podcast and how you you have a theory that if you have a day job that's very far removed from writing, well then it adds a certain something mm. to your writing. Chekhov was a doctor. I think it struck a nerve with me because in South Africa we often talk about how all almost all of our writers are semi pro. Oh. They have day jobs. Mm. And we talk about the fact that in South Africa, with a sort of small reading public, a large unemployment rate, people have more pressing needs than buying the latest hardback. Can I can I just throw in the actual stats to give David some idea of what we're talking about? Out of a country of like fifty-seven million, only a million people buy books. Um, what and uh, Lauren, you'll know the bestseller set. Like to get a bit to have be called a bestseller in South Africa, I think you have to sell a thousand books. I think right? it's a th between a thousand and fifteen hundred copies, and you get ten rand a book, which is fifty p a book essentially. Um, so, 
Thank yeah. you for the context. So just yeah, it just struck a nerve with me thinking, you know, uh, we're always we're always sort of bemoaning the fact that our authors can't just write all day. But then I often think back on, you know, my favorite authors through the ages have always been something else first. But then I suppose there was a meme going around recently about or sort of a little image explaining about how productivity has gone up since the 80s by sort of like a ridiculous percentage, but wages have stayed, you know, more or less the same. Mm. So we're working harder and harder and I, perhaps we're burning ourselves out more and more. And we don't have that sort of nine to five mentality where we then come home and write a short story like Chekhov did. <laughs> and yeah. I was wondering, you know, whether you, if you have any thoughts about that. Um, many. Um, <laughs> but you're full time, right? Yeah. I mean, you're, you don't have a, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. Um, and have been since Ghostwritten, Cloud Atlas? Yeah. Uh, and I've been really lucky. Uh, let's see. Uh, I went to Japan in my early 20s. I taught there. Yes. And first two books published while I was still teaching, then for family reasons, as well as just the uncalculating optimism of youth, I thought, well, what can possibly go wrong? I'll give up my teaching job. Uh, uh, my wife was expecting our first kid at this point as well, which which both motivated mm -hmm. us to leave Japan. Uh, it was to do the exchange rates. I couldn't turn enough from my writing to go full-time in Lever. Japan. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wanted to go full-time so I could help my wife with, uh, with, with, with kid number one. Um, and, uh, and we could only do that in the UK. Uh, I, I didn't know very much about the world, as you can already work out, and I still don't know even less now, I think. But uh, I made that decision, uh, and, and I was really, really fortunate it worked out for me. But I'm also aware you have advantages depending on where you're from and what language you're writing in and even what body you're born in. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of these things, and damn, I've been lucky. Um, the question originally, I'm really sorry, Jennifer, that was so interesting. I kind of slightly lost track of... Well, it's just, <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking, you know, we think about how writers should be able to write full-time, but at the same time, some of the best writers have been something else yeah, yeah, in yeah, their yeah, daily yeah, life. Yeah. Uh, but then nowadays, we don't allow our jobs to stay in their lane as well, as much as we should, and we allow them to intrude in our personal time and our evenings and our weekends. And we're always connected to email. And I suppose we just don't have that off switch where we have to be quite disciplined about it. Maybe if you if you're planning to to write and um, don't let your work dominate your life. So, so I wrote Zoo City with a three month old baby girl while having a full-time day job working as an animation, you know, the head script writer on an animated TV show, which was kind of nine Bells, to six. Bells. Because I live in a country where you can afford childcare, yeah. um, right, and it's a really important right. part of the economy, and I had a very supportive right. partner. But, um, but yes, absolutely, those things are very intrusive. It is very difficult. If this is something you want, you have to find a way to make it happen. And now, like David, I'm in the, you know, since The Shining Girls, I've been very, I'm in the incredibly fortunate position to be able to do this full time and to be able to make a good living from this and to be able to write off adventures as research, you know, expenses. But, but yeah, if you want this, you, you have to, you have to do it and you have to also be willing to accept failure. You have to be willing to realize that your draft zero is absolute rubbish and is not going to stand up on its own and, and to get over that inner critic. Um, there's a young South African writer, I want to say Maya Fowler, I think, um, who literally wrote her book in her lunch break for half an hour at a time, sitting in her car with her laptop propped on her lap. And she just wrote 500 words a day, and that's what it took. So, wow. yeah. But the wow. other thing you have to realize is that, you know, if, even if you do find the time and, and, and manage to do this, you're not necessarily going to be a commercial success. Um, you're not necessarily going to get the incredible reviews. Like you write kind of almost because it's a calling. Um, in South Africa, we have a tradition uh, in in the black communities of um, uh, the call to be a sangoma or a traditional healer. And it is a deep call from the spirits of the ancestors, um, which can make you very ill if you try to resist it. And I'm not saying that writing is the same kind of thing, but it is is—it is something that you feel very deeply and very intensely. I would put what you just said in terms maybe appropriate to my cult and, from, and where I'm from. 
I feel it's a wasted day if a day's gone by and haven't written anything. I feel slightly pissed off with yeah. myself that I let that that I let other stuff get in the way. And it might have been important, or it might or or it might not have been important. But 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 I didn't write that day and I'm kind of oh, you idiot. That day's not coming mm-hmm. back again and you could have done something with it and uh, I, I'd feel a little bit fake if I described that, therefore, as a vocation or a calling. Mm. But but it, but it's real. I'm 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 angry with myself for letting a day go by. Yeah, I I am full of self-loathing. Um, I am never unhappier yeah. than when I don't write. Um, yeah, which I don't think is healthy either. But if it gets a job done. Um, yeah. And <laughs> and we've been talking about the negatives. We've been talking about being on oh, yeah. fire. But isn't it great when you just get a good passage down? Isn't it great when, when you're on you fire. get when you've got something yes. from a draft zero and it's awful, but then you realise, hang on, hang on, and I just do this and oh look at you and then you and and, and, and and then you write one of those sentences which if you encountered it in someone else's book, you would think, damn, you're good. Damn it! Look at yeah. that. And but when it's actually you who's done the writing of that, my lord, it's one of the best feelings in the world. It's just a sentence. It's just arrangements of words in a line on a page, or with luck, a few of those lines next to each other. Uh, you feel temporarily immortal, temporarily indestructible. Uh, you feel utterly validated. You feel that your existence has purpose after all. Okay, you know, we're just a mote of <laughs> dust in the eye of God. But hey. Uh, just for this moment, this mote of dust did something better. This did something actually a little bit godlike. Uh, that's one of the best feelings <laughs> in the world. How do you reward yourself when you do that? Do you give yourself an extra cup of tea? Do you take a half an hour break or do you keep going because... You keep going because you're on it now, I think. <laughs> you're like, okay, okay, I've got this. I've got the, It's flowing. It's good. I am on fire in the good sense. Just, just... Yeah. No reward you could get would surpass the yeah. pleasure of thinking, damn, I'm good about yourself. Uh, <laughs> any bit of chocolate, any any pat on the back, any any glass of vintage wine wouldn't come close. <laughs> okay, well, since you're sort of revealing a little bit about what it feels, how it feels to um, nail it, I'd also like to know about something else that I don't think we get an insight into as readers, which is, I mean, both of you have done an incredible amount of research for these books. And I know writers often talk about how you do sort of like a huge bag of research and then you put in a teaspoon into the book. So um, you have to know what to leave out. Otherwise the book can become very bogged down by, you know, facts and stuff that you've seen and just, you know, you have to keep it, you have to keep it moving. So I'd like to know from these two books, Utopia Avenue and Afterland, what is the what is your, the thing that you've most regretted having to leave out of the book? Well, you know, I did a lot of, I mean, I did a lot of backstory stuff, but that wasn't necessarily research. I, I wish I, and I even tried to do it in the final edits and my editors weren't having it. Um, but I, I had some kind of, you know, it's a little bit hand white wavy science because there is no virus, which is going to turn into an oncovirus that's going to kill everyone with prostate. But I did, I did actually figure it out. And I spoke down with a geneticist friend of mine and she like sent me a video with a whiteboard and she's like explaining how X-linked viruses works and how it has to come through the mother and it has to be that X gene from the mother. And that's why there has to be a global reprohibition where no one's allowed to have babies because unless you have the X-linked gene and the son also has the X-linked gene and or the, or the father, the sperm donor, also has that extinct gene, then you will not be able to make a baby who will be resistant to this terrible virus and they will just die all over again. Um, and I, I kind of, I, maybe for the paperback, I can ask my geneticist friend to just write an essay about how this completely speculative and a little bit hand-wavy science would actually work. But but the fact that extinct genes and viral, um, you know, what viruses latch onto, uh, what's it called? The vi- viral receptors. Um how that's all, how I did actually really think about that a lot and did have it explained to me. So the virus could, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually correct. <laughs> well, you don't, you don't get, I mean, you get an oncovirus, which, you know, you get an STI, which turns into HPV, uh, which affects women and becomes mm-hmm. cervical cancer. You don't have a flu virus, which can then turn into prostate cancer, which will kill you in three months. That, does not exist and hopefully will never. 2020 is um, not over, well, Aaron. It's, yeah, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm going into quarantine, I tell you. <laughs> you know, it was funny, though, because, you know, when we were working on the back cover blurb for the book, um, you know, one of my publishers was like, 
well, do people really know what the word pandemic means? Mm. And now I'm like, <laughs> oh, God. Uh, could you find anyone in the world who, do, who does not know what the word pandemic means now? Now, yeah. Mm. I, had a, I had a list of, of, I mean, I know everyone's been speaking about how it was extraordinarily prescient, but I mean, it was down to things like, okay, virus, pandemic, quarantine, lockdown. You mentioned Disneyland as well as a possible epicenter, which, yeah. you know, kind of happened. Um, people nostalgically watching old Super Bowl matches on television, which <laughs> happened in yeah. the, the conspiracy series. And then, I mean, the creepiest one is hand sanitizer Whoa. selling out. Whoa. <laughs> I know. <It's> well spotted. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, if, if, if I were to respond to the same question about things, mm. I regret leaving things out. Um, obviously, my books are pretty different in many respects to Lauren's. Uh, so we're not quite comparing like mm. with like. But um, for me, the process of writing the book, the process I alluded to earlier about the book, or the writing of the book is the process of the book sort of making clear to you, finally, uh, what the book mm. needs to be. Because of this, the process is, a, is about whittling away the things that you would regret if they were left in and putting them on the cutting room floor where they actually belong. Now, it can hurt at the yeah. time when you slice something off because it's so good and it's a lovely piece of writing and it's working really well and you wrote it and thought, damn, you're good. But it doesn't belong in the book. And you, one of the transitions from zero draft to your, to your true first draft is working out which are the darlings that you need to kill. Mm -hmm. It's... Uh, Things that you do regret in the present tense when you have to say goodbye to them. I don't say goodbye to them permanently. I put them in a file called the useful file. And that way I don't think I'm sort of pressing delete on them forever. And if I, want, if, if I ever want them back, then I can always access them easily. Strangely enough, though, or not strangely enough, maybe this is the point, I never do. I have never gone back to the useful bin and pulled something back and put it back in the main body of a manuscript yep. because I put it in there in the first place because I was stuck, because the book was misshapen, because the zero draft was staying as a zero draft and not getting to the first draft stage. Why? Because there was this great thing, there's a good piece of writing, but it just didn't belong there. And it was bending everything else out of shape around it, like some Einsteinian phenomenon that was bending the gravity waves that needed to be the way they needed to be for the book to work. So actually, when I get to the end of a book, if I've done my job right, I have no regrets about things I wished were still mm. in there. Because if they should have been still in there, then they would still be there. The point was the book wasn't working, so they had to go. So, I mean, we, we've probably all heard the aphorism, um, books are never finished, they're merely abandoned. Um, so at some point you, you decide there's nothing more I can do. And I was wondering, do you, do you ever have the urge to go back and fiddle with the books? Do you sort of go back and open your copy of Cloud Atlas and write in the margin, <laughs> you know, an extra paragraph or strike something out? Or, um, or do you uh, sort of just throw them out of a moving car? Books are never finished. They are merely abandoned at the right point. Yes. They're merely abandoned at the point where they need to be abandoned because if you carry on with them, you're going to make them worse. Definitely. So I would add that appendix to the aphorism. And... And you know you're there when you do a run-through and you're changing things back to how they were before your last set of changes. Mm. That's how you know. That's when, oh, leave us alone now. It's off. My Frankenstein can go running over the ice. You see what I did there, Lauren? Yeah, um, I saw that. Thank you. <laughs> into the um, house made of sinew, into uh, the Einsteinian. <laughs> via the druid, via the assassin. Absolutely. Via <laughs> um, so... Oh, I forgot what else I was going to say. <laughs> Over to you, Lauren. Well, you know, I think I think it is very clear when it is finished. Like, I, I don't actually have a problem letting go of a book. I'm like, cool, I'm done. It's also by that stage, I'm thoroughly sick of the damn thing. But I, but I also think that there's such a process, you know. I think maybe what, what people are talking about is when it goes out to edits, but then then you, you go through an edit, and then you go through a second round of edits, and then you go through the copy edits, and then you go through the proofs. So, like, and all of those are a process of letting go and a process of, like, refining as much as you can. Will the book ever live up to the platonic ideal in your head that you started with? No, but but that's okay because you made the thing that you were capable of making and hopefully it's a beautiful thing that lives in the world. Amen and hallelujah. Um, <laughs> often, I don't know if you get the same 
long, but friends and family say, have you finished it yet? And they say, ah, well, the thing is, there isn't a time and a time and again, I should just get this printed on a T-shirt so I could just go <laughs> rip my overcoat off and say, just read this. There isn't, there is no one finishing line. Mm. There's a finishing line when you hand in what you think will be the last manuscript. There's a finishing line when your editor sends you back the last set of changes and you incorporate them or maybe reject them or, or justify them or whatever. There's a finishing line when the proofreaders, uh, when you get their notes, there's mm. the finishing line where uh, you get feedback from the proof stages where there's some factual inaccuracies that a reader from such a place has kindly informed you about. Uh, there's yeah. a zone of finishing lines that it takes about six months to work through. So that's kind of yeah. one thing. Regarding living up to the platonic ideal, uh, this links in a little bit to what you're saying earlier, Lauren, about readers who say, oh, did you mean that? Because I thought that was so mm -hmm. clever. Actually, there's a multiplicity of platonic ideas, ideals. There's yeah. the one that you have in your head before you start to write the book. Of course, it's going to be different to that. But then there are other sort of ideal books that live in other people's heads. They may even exceed yes. your own original platonic idea. It may be better, for all you know. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's great when you get... Um, when you just get the look on the reader's face and the gleam in their eye and they really connected with it for reasons you might not that might not have been first and foremost or even dare we whisper it at all in your mind when you mm -hmm. when you were working on that translation of the platonic ideal into the book that ends up being printed finally i remember what i want to say earlier jennifer um i can't reread myself really except for when i do these sort of raids on earlier books to see to learn about characters I wrote 15 years ago to see if they'll fit into what I want to do now that's the only time I look mm. at them because I look at my earlier things including Cloud Atlas which probably will be the best selling thing I've ever written it's only my third book but I look back at it now and, and think, ah, look at that. Well, I mean, the first thing I think of is too many metaphors. I think there's, there's a metaphor, this thing is a metaphor, Trench. What was I thinking? Just, just, just only resort to a metaphor kind of when, when you know it's a four-star or a five-star metaphor. Only then does it have any business being anywhere near your page. If it's one, two or three-star, out with it. And if you're not sure if it's <laughs> yeah. a three or a four star, out with it. It means it's not a four, if there's any doubt. So that's the first thing I think. <laughs> and an over-fondness for cliche, I, I just sort of... So I read it through one ear, and through the other ear, I hear how I would write it now. And the dissonance between those two just makes it unreadable. And I think that's a good thing, not a bad thing, because it'd be more depressing. Because it means you've grown. Exactly. And it just means that I'm eternally... It's not I'm ashamed of them. I'm not because they were the best I could have done then. But I'm a little bit, oh, yeah. geez, my name's on the cover. And what I don't have underneath my name is, oh, and incidentally, if I was writing this, I'd do it a lot better now, in brackets. <laughs> <laughs> or please no, was 27 at the time. <laughs> That's what, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I had a lot of, um, sort of getting towards the end of our time, I had a lot of specific questions I wanted to ask, like a, like a proper um, book nerd. Well, let's do a quick fire. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's been very difficult to wrangle. So, um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so, I had, so I'd like to end off with a couple of questions just about my sort of favorite characters from each of the books. Lauren, Billy is just awesome. She's, um, I think she was, she's possibly, Such a dick. she's possibly she's my great. favorite character you've ever written. <laughs> um, you sort of just, I was just found myself waiting for her to come back into the book because she's just, yeah, she's just such a dreadful person, but she's so much fun. Do you become attached to your characters? Do you ever feel the urge to bring them back? Do, do you feel sad when, you had to say goodbye to Billy? Or did you not even really like her and you preferred someone else? I really enjoyed writing Billy's certainty because she is this absolute narcissist. She genuinely believes that everything which has happened is this terrible, terrible insult and affront and injury that has been done to her by other people. And they are the selfish ones and the awful ones. And she's always got a plan. She's always scheming. Um, and that was incredibly fun to live in, to live inside her head. Because Cole, her sister, is just full of self-doubt and she's trying to make the best decision, but she's also a parent. And, and you know, as she says, like parenting is like the worst game of improv ever, where you're just really trying to figure it out all the time. And Billy doesn't have any of that. She's so easy and, you know, and, it, and so it was very fun to write her. But interestingly, people either love her or they absolutely despise her and they can't wait for her to leave the page. <laughs> um, 
But then my kid brother said to me, he's been reading it, he's like, I see a lot of myself in Billy. I'm like, oh, <laughs> really? That's really interesting and kind of terrifying. I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think of the last place we see her. I mean, you could, those, your um, nun sect was also so cool that, you know, you could um, bring them back with Billy as the new mother inferior. That would be pretty cool. I mean, I can definitely see Billy doing that. <laughs> Um, and then, David, I wanted to ask you a sort of silly question, but the Dessert family, I'm just really glad that you brought you brought a scion into this mix because um, I'm very fond of, I was very fond of Jacob. But I was wondering, it's kind of a silly question, but what do you think, um, I've forgotten his name now, oh my God. Um, Marinus? The Dessert in Jasper? <laughs> Jasper, sorry. Jasper. What do you think Jasper's been doing during lockdown? Um, Jasper during lockdown. So how old is he now? He's a bit older than me. Uh, he's he's in his late sixties. Jasper's probably. I mean, uh, I drop a few hints. Uh, he's given up music professionally, but I'm sure he still plays quietly. So he's been noodling away. Um, um, the Cuban guitar composer Leo Broa is probably. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. Broa Broa. He's, he's been perfecting uh, renditions of fairly old classical guitar music, probably. But uh, also, Jasper's been spending a lot of time in New York. He's probably become adopted by the horologists. So I think he's been busy on horology business as well. And possibly, possibly his own relationship with death has been somewhat altered by being the vessel for this sentient curse that got passed down his bloodline for 200 years and I think we might be seeing him again in the future. Um, it's a handy side effect from the novel that I never have to say goodbye, uh, of, of the uber novel rather, the, the sort of metaverse, yeah. that I never have to say goodbye to any of my characters. Even if they die, uh, they, they might be back or I could set a novel or bring something in from a timeline before their death. So I never say goodbye to anyone. I probably won't be revisiting a vast majority of them because I'm only me and there's lots of them. But I never know which ones have gone for good and which ones will be back. So that's, so that's my position. I've just, I've just sort of um, almost proved false my own impression, but um, by forgetting Jasper's don't worry, name. Don't worry. But <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to ask, the names of your recurring characters really seem to jump off the page, and I'm not sure whether it's because they've stuck in my mind. Do you, how do you choose those names? Do you choose names that sort of stand out somehow? Through an endless process of, um, of, of let's try this one out, rejection. I mean, kind of one of the biggest gifts of information technology to authors is the, uh, the common find and replace thing on, on every word processing package since the 90s, because you can try them out, and I do try them out constantly. Because they're, they're normal normal names. They're not, um, apart from Bet, Bet Segundo, but I mean, Louisa Ray is a fairly average, it's, it's, not a, it's not a strange name, but it does seem to have a sort of strange um, they, feel. Uh, well, good. Uh, if they look invented by a novelist, then that's a problem because it takes you out of the narrative. Aaron Spelling, the uh, TV producer behind many hit shows talks about how visually the many characters who appear in an ensemble show they distinguish themselves by the hair it's all about the hair uh, and you can see this exaggerated to an nth degree in anime and manga Hair is used as an as, as an identifier tag. Ah, you're the one with the blonde quiff. You're the one with the the crew cut skinhead. You're the one with the Mohican. You're the one with the pink hair, etc., etc., etc. The textual equivalent to that is the names. So, generally, the higher the Scrabble score of the name, the stickier it is to the eyeball when you read it. And okay, you're the one with all the K's in your name. You're the one. Uh, you're Jasper. It's not John. We met a million Johns. You meet a Jasper. You go, oh, don't meet that very often. Jasper, yeah. Mm. Um, it's K's, J's, Z's, Q's. These stick to the eyeball, and a character hasn't really come alive until you've got the name right. There, ideally, there are resonances as well that that quietly or discreetly rhyme with the personality with the character. So Louisa Ray, I got her name directly from a quite wonderful novella by Thornton Wilder called The Bridge of San Louis Ray. 
Louis uh, and Ray is throughout the same, which is a great, great novella about a bunch of people who cross a bridge and the bridge collapses and they they all die. And this is in South America at the end of the nineteenth uh, century. And the priest uh, investigates them to see he, he investigates their lives to see sort of what it was about them that made God take them at that moment. And it's it's, it's about predestination and chance and fates and what is in charge of the big things that happen in our lives. It's a wonderful thing. But all of those echoes, if you read the story, and the crucial thing in my mystical West Cork hippy-dippy way, I like to, even if you haven't read the story, there's still sort of echoes in the name. Um, Elf Holloway, mm. who is who plays the keyboards in the band, uh, Utopia Avenue, she's probably the, that's probably the name I prefer prevaricated over most they also incidentally they mustn't resemble other nearby names so a, a classic thing and this is why mm. tolkien was a chancer sauron saruman it's it's identical it's almost the same name as i'm kind of redundant. what are you thinking mate it's, it's, mm. it's that's the same name and as a boy <laughs> I, um must have read that when i was nine or ten years old on the wings of the hobbit um I didn't know which, I, I didn't know who was who. So you've got to space your names. So high scrabble scores, space the names, give them mm. not obvious resonances. They need to be unusual enough to stick to the eyeball, but not so unusual that they're downright Dickensian. So those are my principles there. And I've gone down that rabbit hole for too long. Back to you. <laughs> I know. I mean, I, I blatantly steal names. If I meet someone with an interesting name, I stole both Kirby, which is the heroine who is the heroine of The Shining Girls, and Cole from people I met. Uh, and I said to them, I'm like, that is a cool name and I'm stealing it. <laughs> they do not get any like royalties. I do the same. I've got a page in my notebook called The Name Bank. Um, I met a great name this this morning, Young Husband. It's a surname, Young Husband, oh, yes. all one word. Mm-hmm. You, you, know, you use that on a I actually know a Young Husband. Really? So do I. I think it's yeah. probably the same hey. Young Husband. <laughs> <laughs> Unforgettable. You meet that on a page, that is not going to blend into the background. You know exactly who Young Husband is every time you meet, them. and and if you make the character female, if it's <laughs> Jane Young Husband, or um, I think of a better name than Jane, but uh, Vasty, then yeah, it's great. Um, so so these, these tricks. Well, you know, you know, speaking of names, I mean, it's 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 funny because um, I've never come across a Jennifer in fiction until a South African novelist called Craig Higginson wrote a book with a Jennifer in it over the last year. But I mean, it's just one of those names that I think is kind of mm. too common. It's not evocative enough. Sorry, Jen. <laughs> Jen is. Jen is nice. Jen Malik is a great name. Um, there's one more principle of name choosing, which is uh, you don't come too close to home. So yeah. Jennifer is my mother's name. And mm. I mean, uh, I, 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 I don't have enough money to pay for the Freudian analyst <laughs> to handle that, the fallout, <laughs> to handle the fallout by using my mother's real name. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, names of girlfriends, names of lovers, names of your kids. Uh, uh, this is just a no-go area because uh, some superstitious part of me thinks I'll, I will be jinxing people by using <laughs> their names. Lauren may want to write that wrong by putting in a Jennifer for the right. The character comes along. There we go. I can never do it because it's mum. <laughs> well, I don't have a lot of close <laughs> Jennifers in my life. So, yes, we can talk. I can be bribed. <laughs> I'll pay you. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, if, if, you have, if you're listening to this and you haven't yet read either of these books, you really, really have to immediately um, go out and get a copy. You can get them at the Book Lounge, which is, you know, first prize, your local brick and mortar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, if you have to get it somewhere else, you know, if you live overseas, we'll allow you to buy it in another bookstore. A bricks and mortar bookstore. Yes, an indie, an indie bookstore. And ideally an independent yes. bricks and mortar bookstore. Yes. And you'll you'll know them by their covers. They both have the most beautiful covers of, of 2020. I think they both come out in 2020. Afterland is purple and pink and orange and vaporwave. And Utopia Avenue is green and yellow and red and blue and purple and psychedelic. So if nothing else, they will look beautiful in your house. Um, thank you so much for joining me and having a rambling conversation, Lauren and David. Um, a real treat for me. So um, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, I haven't had this much fun on a Zoom conversation for a long time. Uh, really nice meeting you, Lauren. You too, and, David. Uh, you wonderful. too, Jennifer. Uh, 
Thank you for herding us cats with such <laughs> professionalism and aplomb, Jennifer. I just keep quiet. And allowing us all our metaphors, every single one. <laughs> just keep quiet and let the people who know what they're talking about talk. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I just want to add one last thing, which is that the Book Lounge in Cape Town is the most wonderful indie bookstore. And if you are listening to this from overseas, from not outside of South Africa, they can ship my books signed and personalized to you wherever you are. And we, we do that quite a lot. The Book Lounge in Cape Town. If I ever get to South Africa, then I will make sure I visit you. Book Lounge. Definitely, you have to. Beware. That's the best. I know where you are. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jen. Thanks for listening, everyone. Those titles again are Afterland by Lauren Bierkus and Utopia Avenue by David Mitchell. And as they've said, both are available at the Book Lounge in Cape Town. The final episode for the series is coming out on Thursday the 12th of November, and it's a conversation about masculinity, featuring Professor Malose Langa and Malusi Chabalala, and they are speaking to Koketso Sachane. This podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, the Heinrich Bull Foundation. The Heinrich Bull Foundation has been actively promoting the consolidation of democracy and human rights, advancing gender equality, and taking action to prevent the destruction of the environment in Southern Africa since 1989. The Foundation's work in Southern Africa consists of four programs. Democracy and social justice, human rights and gender justice, sustainable development, and international politics and dialogue. Thanks as always to our superb editor and producer, Andrew Burnett. Until next time, I'm Fasti Kalitz, listening with you to the Open Book Podcast Series. (laughs) 